Welcome to the MacPFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you all sorts of content from inspiring you to teach or supervise differently to leading and managing your team to thinking about new creative ways or humanistic ways to actually do your work and finally to up your game in your scholarly practice. Are you excited yet? I certainly am. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. In this episode, we listen to Dr. Bram Rochward chat about scientific knowledge translation. We'll learn about living guidelines, network meta-analyses, and Dr. Rochward's career journey that has brought him to where he is today. We hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. I am here with another guest to take us behind the scenes a little bit behind the science that we see in the, you know, the headlines and, and the big journals. And uh, I'm here with Dr. Brian Rochberg, who is an intensivist and a scholar and a gentleman. And he's kindly conceded to being interviewed for this podcast. So, Bram, will you say hi? Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me, Teresa. All right. So can you tell me what you've been up to during this pandemic? Because you've done some pretty cool stuff and probably better for you to just uh, tell it like it is. You know, I think um, the pandemic uh, led many of us to have to pivot some of our research interests and help deal with this monumental and unprecedented challenge that COVID was. And I think, you know, obviously, both of us were at the front lines from a clinical perspective in terms of managing uh, patients with COVID in the emergency department and in the ICU and seeing that the impact that COVID-19 had on our community and on our patients, I think any opportunity to help improve outcomes uh, in patients with COVID was was sought after and appreciated. And a few different areas of research that I, I work on, but one of those is clinical practice guideline development. And, uh, you know, being at McMaster is sort of the, the mecca of clinical practice guidelines. In fact, you know, GRADE, which is one of the methodologies for producing guidelines, was uh, invented by, by folks at McMaster and still arguably the, the home of GRADE uh, worldwide. And it's through connections with these mentors uh, that I had opportunities to work with um, the World Health Organization. It started very, very early in the pandemic and has continued now on this relationship for the last two years. And it's a relationship between uh, the World Health Organization, the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, which is our outlet for these guidelines, uh, MAGIC, which is a group that helps develop clinical practice guidelines and provide methodologic support. And it's all disciples of Gordon Guyatt, who's one of my mentors and folks that have done graduate training uh, here at McMaster. And then there's a a few, I group us as, you know, Canadians interested in guideline development that have helped with methodology. So uh, at this point, you know, we're, it's a living guideline. It's informed by a living network meta-analysis. I'm happy to talk about both of those more at your discretion. We're up to the uh, eighth iteration, I think, of the guideline, the living guideline at this point. It's been pretty awesome seeing the explosion of new data, new evidence that has also come out in the last two years. And using the living evidence summary, we've been able to rapidly incorporate this new evidence into the clinical recommendations. So, you know, starting with, I think our first recommendation was on steroids. This was some of the first data that we had and our latest recommendations on some of these newer oral um, antiviral agents. 
And uh, I've been fortunate enough to be methods chair. So I've acted as one of the chairs of the guideline, uh, specifically around, you know, there's a clinical chair and a methodologic chair. I've been methods chair for a number of iterations for these updates. It's been an incredible experience. That sounds like a multiple laps of a marathon right now. It sounds like this is the a living guideline. It sounds like something that really doesn't end necessarily. Um, and is this something that you're seeing more and more, or is this a new innovation that happened during COVID? I think the idea for living guidelines, Teresa, has been around for five or 10 years, but actually putting this into practice, you can imagine takes a lot of work. You need folks that are constantly evaluating the literature, summarizing the data, and then evaluating whether recommendations should change based on the latest randomized control trials. You essentially need a standing guideline panel that's available to address new research as it gets published. And so I think although the concepts have been there, I think it took something like the pandemic, as with so many other aspects of our life, to give that final kick in the pants to get it up and going and operational. Uh, and you know, I, I do think it's perhaps the future is that the lessons learned, again, as with so many other aspects of life, uh, lessons learned from the pandemic perhaps now could be applied to other areas of uh, uh, guidelines, other areas of research moving forward. But it definitely has been a marathon. I think when we started this guideline effort two years ago, none of us imagined that we would be on the eighth or ninth iteration two years later. Yeah, it's uh, definitely been a whirlwind to watch all of the uh, the research come out. And I am very glad and thankful every time you all put that work in so that I can have a guideline that I can look at very quickly. Um, and, and I think that that's one of the things I was going to give you kudos to is really like the guidelines have um, not just been these stodgy, multi-page things, like you've really tried to make them come alive and easy to digest uh, for all the folks like me who may have attention deficit problems. And so uh, can you can you walk me through kind of like, did you partner with the BMJ to make those? Because they, they've, they've definitely been in the BMJ and I know that's your like kind of an, your outlet for getting the word out, but can you walk us through how those came to be? Of course, and you know, I can't take credit for the decision aids and the visual graphics that we put together. It's it's certainly it's a large team that works on these uh, guidelines, and um, partly it's uh, magic and magic. Part in addition to methodologic support for the guidelines, they have a, a website and an app, and very handy decision aids and tools that are uh, designed to help in shared decision making between clinicians and patients. So. All of the guidelines, in addition to being published on the BMJ, are also available in the app, and I encourage folks to have a look if they're interested. And then, as you say, the BMJ has been fantastic. They have an infographic specialist uh, on their staff that has helped put together our infographic. And if you go to the BMJ website to the guidelines, there's a very nice uh, summary diagram that you know all seven or eight iterations are nicely summarized using color coding, very digestible information. Even cooler, the living network meta-analysis is also published in the BMJ. This is the evidence summary of all the different interventions. And it's a separate publication. And if you go to that one, you can just Google living network meta-analysis BMJ for COVID-19. A very, very interactive uh, infographic that you can look at all the comparisons between each of the anti-COVID agents seeing effect estimates for each of the different outcomes. It's, it's quite cool. And like I say, you can just click around with the mouse uh, seeing the different effects. Wow, that's really cool. So walk me through 
first of all, walk me through what a network meta-analysis is, because not everyone's heard of them. I, I stumbled upon them a little while ago, and they're fascinating. But how are they different from a regular meta-analysis? Yeah, it's a great question. You might be familiar uh, with a, a traditional, we call it pairwise meta-analysis, essentially looking at if there's multiple randomized control trials that look at the same comparison. Let's say if we look at sepsis, steroids versus no steroids. Well, the only thing better than a randomized control trial addressing steroids versus no steroids would be seven randomized control trials or 10 randomized control trials. And if there have been multiple uh, studies that have similar patients, similar intervention studied, similar comparison and outcomes, you can statistically put those studies together to get an overall pooled um, estimate of effect. And this works well if you're looking at one thing versus another. But the realities of life is that we're often looking at multiple different potential options. You know, you think about um, different intravenous fluids for critically ill patients. You think about different vasopressors. All my examples are critical care related. I apologize. You think about different vasopressors for patients that are in shock. Or in this example, you think about different drugs that one might use in patients with uh, COVID-19. And it's not just one agent versus another, but rather, you know, our repertoire now is increasing to include antivirals, anti-inflammatory agents, um, et cetera. And so the idea behind a network meta-analysis is it's a bit more of a complex analytic model that's able to put all of these interventions into the same statistical analysis, looking at both direct comparisons, so agent A versus agent B, but also indirect comparisons, let's say, a and C have never been directly compared to each other, but they've both been compared to B, you can actually make indirect comparisons of A versus C through B, which is we call a common comparator. So there's a number of advantages of using network meta-analysis uh, in situations where you do have multiple potential options. Sounds um, kind of like how I make decisions in the day days before about vacations, for instance, right? Or restaurants at this point, right? Like um, sometimes you are just running off between this kind of pizza or that kind of pizza because there's only two pizza choices in Hamilton that people will respect, right? So you have those two options and it's an A and B comparison. But sometimes you want to go for a bigger swath of dietary choices. And so you might need to look at the Yelp ratings and the reviews from your friends and you're comparing, okay, well, this person had a bad experience at that restaurant and this person thought it was not bad compared to this. Okay. So how do I make a decision about whether or not I'm going to dine at this new restaurant? It's very similar to that kind of decision-making. It's just more mathy and more researchy. That's a nice analogy. I think that's our next network meta-analysis. We're going to have to look at restaurant choices within the Hamilton area. It's great. I'm, uh, I'm I love it. it. Yeah, we need to gather the data for sure. <laughs> and and so I think that like what you're talking about is really like all of this really and what you've focused on in a bunch of research is really that getting knowledge into end users hands, right? So knowledge translation um, being a big part of what you do. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it's I think there's obviously knowledge translation is layered. And I do think that the development of clinical practice guidelines is uh, knowledge translation, but you know you can then even talk about how do you translate that knowledge when it comes to guidelines and recommendations to to end users as well. So I do think it's it's layered, but it's exactly some of the intent. I mean, the information explosion, Teresa, in the last two years around COVID. You look at PubMed. I think it's in the 
the millions of articles that have been published about COVID now in the last two years. And you can't expect a practitioner to be up to date on all the latest data, even somebody who's interested in the field and, and has experience with evidence-based medicine, it's almost impossible to stay up to date uh, with everything that's come out in the last couple of years. And we know how much misinformation and disinformation is out there too. So I think that part of the goal here was to generate trustworthy clinical guidance uh, we'll do the hard work, the heavy lifting in terms of the network meta-analysis and summarizing the best data, and hopefully then compartmentalize exactly what practitioners need to know into uh, easy to understand, easy to apply uh, clinical recommendations. So it's certainly the goal. One of the added challenges with the WHO recommendations, as you can imagine, is that the guidance is meant to be applicable worldwide in a whole bunch of different contexts. And obviously recommendations for Canada might be different than recommendations for Sri Lanka, it might be different than recommendations for China uh, and uh, perhaps other low or middle income countries. So that's been an added challenge, but also you know, uniquely interesting as well. And on our WHO calls, it's sometimes humbling. We have folks literally from uh, around the world, from Sub-Saharan Africa, from Indonesia, the Philippines, um, all in different time zones, and, and it's incredibly challenging to schedule. I've definitely had to get up at two in the morning or three in the morning for calls related to WHO work, just because, you know, everyone is expected to take a turn uh, at times that aren't uh, convenient for them. But it's an added element that makes it, again, especially compelling. So interesting. And so um, dial us back a little bit. How did you get into all of this knowledge translation stuff, was this something you always envisioned when you stepped in as a new investigator at the very beginning? Or is this something that you evolved into? Um, you know, the behind the science series that we're doing, we're asking people to kind of reflect on how they got to where they are. And, and I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts, because you're now, well, you're like me, mid-career-ish, ish, early in my career, I don't know what to call this. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think that, um, it's, it's interesting to reflect back on one's career and see how you got to where you are. And, and so I, I'm wondering if we can ask you to, to do that with us here. Sure. I mean, I, I think we're around the same vintage. It's, it's that overlying imposter syndrome I feel like we all face. I still consider myself in my head uh, early career investigator, just fresh out of uh, fellowship. But, you know, certainly based on CHR labels, I think I fit as mid-career now. Probably both of us would. Um, you know, I think as with everything, it's, it all comes down to mentorship. I did ICU training uh, here in Hamilton at McMaster, and then I did the clinician investigator program, which provided the avenue for doing uh, the HRM masters at the same time. It's a fantastic program, and I learned lots through the HRM. But again, as with anything, when it comes to graduate training, probably I learned the most from my mentors and those that were guiding my career, folks like Deborah Cook and Maureen Mead and Roman Yeshka, Holger Schunemann. And I think when it comes to guideline development, you know, my early experiences learning from Roman, Roman uh, Yeshka, who works at St. Joe's, was providing methodologic support almost single-handedly for a number of ICU organizations. And he mentored at the time, both myself and Walid Al-Hazani uh, in, in sort of taking on that component of his academic contributions. And it was the sort of see one, do one, teach one approach is that Roman sort of mentored us and showed us with the first guideline. Uh, and then after that said, all right, jump in. It's, it's, it's up to you now. And you sort of felt like you didn't have the tools necessary to provide methodologic support for some of these guidelines, but it helped knowing that folks like Roman, folks like Gordon, 
uh, like Holger were available on a quick notice or a quick phone call or text if you needed inputs or advice on how to handle specific situations. So I think it was that early experiential uh, going through the motions that helped me develop an expertise in providing this sort of methodologic support for critical care societies. And then, you know, once you have even an inkling of this uh, ability, so many organizations now are wanting to produce guidelines and don't have the expertise. And so I quickly found that you were a, a hot commodity in terms of somebody that has both the clinical understanding, because often there's methodologists, but they don't understand the clinical side of things, or there's clinicians that don't understand the, the methodologic side of things. So, you know, it's a bit of a, a bit rare zebra to have, you know, the clinical side of things and the methodologic side of things. So you quickly very sought after and then it, it quickly turned into a, a situation of having more opportunities than time. And I've had to carefully decide which guideline projects I get involved in and which I don't, because I have other research interests as well. But when I heard about this one, uh, an opportunity to work with the WHO, and this specific offer came through Gordon, through the folks that he had mentored uh, within MAGIC, it was one that I couldn't turn down. And it's been a great experience over the last couple of years. Excellent. Um, it's so mentorship so important, I think, for many, many researchers. Is there anything that you would, you know, now give some mentorship to others when they are trying to get into uh, a new area like this? Um, it sounds like asking for help is important. What are some other pro tips that you can think of um, when you're getting started in your early research career? Yeah, I think as with anything, finding the right mentors is important. And it's not just the mentors that are well accomplished in the field, but mentors that are going to be um, also responsive to your needs and, and the mentorship and supervision that you require. And sometimes that doesn't, it means not going to the top investigator in the field that you want to get into, but picking somebody that's maybe a little bit more early or mid-career that can also has the time and the energy to provide that mentorship. Um, I think getting some element of formal uh, training in research, if that's what you're interested in, is important, or at least having a plan for that. You know, I did lots of research before my HRM uh, master's, but, but I think that having that piece of paper and going through the formal training, you know, none of us would walk into the emergency department and just expect to be able to intubate folks or manage critically ill patients without the underlying training and, and educational side of things. So I think walking in and expecting to be able to do a meta-analysis or lead a guideline without the, the paper uh, and without the background knowledge uh, is naive. So I think that um, you know, having a plan to pursue higher education with that mentorship is, is, is important. And the, we are lucky at McMaster with the HRM program to have a, an excellent training program close to home. It worked out really well for me with the clinician investigator program. And I know it's worked for others, but there's other avenues as well. And other schools too, that offer great uh, ClinEpi programs. So I think those are probably the two most key is, is good mentorship and, and finding good mentorship and taking the time to identify good mentors, obviously working hard and committing yourself uh, to these sort of things. And then um, having a plan or, or to acquire the background knowledge and graduate training that you require to do it. I think those are good building blocks for anyone's career. So thank you for that. Um, all right. So any final thoughts or any kind of, uh, next directions like do you do you see more groups like you want to throw in the gauntlet to say more people should do these living meta-analyses or living guidelines like what do you think the future of guideline work might look like uh in the coming years 
I do think it's uh, the future is more of these living guidelines. I think that guidelines have long suffered from uh, the fact that they are uh, challenging and time consuming to produce. You look at, at least again, back to our critical care world, seminal guidelines like surviving sepsis or the pain agitation delirium guidelines, where the scope is so enormous uh, that these efforts take, you know, years even to produce uh, one set of guidelines. And I think that it seems the future is moving definitely to living guidelines, but smaller scope, easier to turn around. So, you know, let's say new data comes out looking at a new sedation agent for patients that are mechanically ventilated. Well, you know, bite off that chunk, address it quickly, come up with guidance for clinicians that they can use in a timely manner, and then, you know, move on to the next pressing question as part of this living effort. Whereas uh, steering away from these monstrosities of documents that we call clinical practice guidelines that uh, deal with every aspect of clinical care, I think is, is a more historical and, and perhaps um, not the best use of time and resources. But I think we will see more and more of these living evidence reviews, living guidelines that uh, can be rapidly produced uh, to address important clinical questions. All right, that's really exciting. Well, thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure to have a chat with you and we'll have to bring you back another time to reflect on some other portfolio of research that you've engaged in because it sounds like you have more. So thanks for the teaser and uh, we'll bring you back another time. Thanks, bro. Thanks for uh, the chat. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's macpfd.ca. Here you can find other episodes as well as resources for your personal and professional development. A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Mania Panda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it, and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.